So we've just heard from Anna about her son, Ethan, and we have Dr. Ben Coe, a consultant specialist in paediatric and child development at Bart's Health NHS Trust. And Dr. Coe actually diagnosed Ethan. Um, Dr. Coe, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you. Uh, I think that many listeners will be familiar with some of the characteristics of autism, uh, but for you as the clinician who actually has to make the diagnosis, what is it that you need to see in order to build a picture in your mind that allows you to say, yes, this child has definitely got autism or no, they don't? So autism is a term to describe um, a developmental condition which affects um, between 1-2% to of a population mm-hmm. and those individuals have have difficulties in learning skills that would come quite naturally or instinctively to others. And so the condition affects mainly three areas of development. The first one is social interaction, Mm -hmm. the second one is communication, and the third one would be the development of imaginative and flexible thinking. And if you start looking for signs of autism, you're just about finding in everybody. Mm-hmm. And so that thankfully doesn't make all of us autistic. Yeah. And so there's a lot of research has gone into um, what or when it becomes autism. It's a degree mm-hmm. of difficulties in all those three areas. Yeah. And so when a parent or um, a, an individual came to me and, and said they are concerned that their child may have autism, yeah. I would start looking for difficulties in those three areas. And in order to be certain, um, formal diagnostic assessment would be required. And there are um, quite well standardized tests that I would administer looking Mm -hmm. for difficulties in those three areas. It is kind of like a very sophisticated tick box exercise that we will see how many features there are Mm -hmm. in each one of those three areas. And at the end of that, we would add up the scores and see whether there are sufficient severity for us to consider autism. Now, that is only part of it because one can just get a robot to do that. You don't yeah. need a specialist like myself. Yeah. But you need to look at the whole picture. Kind of like you need to look at the results, take a step back and say, does it make sense for, for me to think that this child has got a developmental condition that is going to have a, a significant impact on the child's functioning? Mm-hmm. And the other thing that one needs to consider that there are also other conditions that can look like autism, but it's yeah. not developmental. For example, if a child has got um, what I recognize as big emotional problems, yeah. for example, with excessive anxiety or frustration, mm-hmm. they may behave in a way that would be perceived as being autistic, like they don't want to talk yeah. to people, they yeah. don't look at people, and so on and yeah. so forth. So you need to look at that side of things. And there are other developmental conditions that can look a bit like autism. For yeah. example, quite a lot of the speech and language disorders can make a child look like having autism because mm-hmm. without the speech and language skills they mm-hmm. will have difficulties interact with people mm-hmm. they may want to make things predictable for themselves yeah. and so you need to think about whatever features you have elicited are over and above what can be explained by other conditions yeah you often hear people say this phrase now you know so and so is a little bit autistic that's interesting what you say about um everybody having a little bit of uh you know, autistic traits, if you like. Is that what you were meaning by that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. different people have got different um, degree of being sociable. 
Some people like to just to be by themselves, and some people cannot be without people at all. Yeah. So it is a degree of how much this is affecting their their day to day functioning, yeah. and relationship. Do you think that you could explain to us a little bit about what causes autism? When I was researching about autism for the purposes of this podcast, I found that if you were an identical twin and had a sibling. Uh, who had autism, then you are much, much more likely to have autism yourself, which suggests a strong genetic tendency. But are there other factors that are important? So there's certainly a very strong genetic component. As you pointed out, uh, the um, incidence among identical twins are very high. Not only that, if you have a sibling, like a brother or sister with autism, your risk of having autism is actually a lot higher than the general public. Yeah. So we know that there are um, genetic factors, but it is not a simple single genetic um, mm-hmm. disease which would be really predictable. Yeah. It, it seems to be a, a multiple gene um, influence into what may turn someone into autism. And also there are some protective factor. So it seems that the X chromosome is protective. And so girls with two X chromosomes are less likely to have yeah. autism as compared to boys who has only got one. It's somewhere in the region of three to one it affects boys to girls, is that right? It depends on um, the kind of autism. Mm-hmm. So generally, um, it's between three to five boys to one girl. Yeah. But if you look at the, the higher functioning end of autism, so those who used, we used to uh, call Asperger's syndrome, um, the higher functioning autism, mm-hmm. there's actually a much higher male predominance. Yeah. Um, and some figures in the past even say it's a, 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 as high as 9 to 1. Wow. So, yeah, so certainly a, a lot more males as compared to females. Mm-hmm. And nowadays we are beginning to recognize that some females in the past we may not have considered being um, autistic um, actually got autism. Mm-hmm. And but But females have got a lot of protective factors and they yeah. can compensate much better than, than, than boys can. And uh, are there any other external factors that might contribute towards the risk of developing autism? Environmental factors, I'm not sure whether there's very strong evidence for that. Mm. Um, there was an interesting cohort of um, orphans in, an, in a Romanian orphanage who mm-hmm. all developed very autistic-like features and yeah. that seems to be secondary to really quite severe lack of stimulation and yeah. interaction with people. They were just left in the orphanage with very little human contact yeah, with gosh. other people and they became quite quite autistic-like. Yeah. Um, and then there's another group of children um, who didn't appear to have autistic features to begin with, but they became, some of them turned out to have more and more autistic features and mm-hmm. those are children with quite severe visual impairment. Yeah. Um, that they seem to be going on, getting on fine, and mm-hmm. then in half, sort of in mid childhood, they became quite sort of um, self absorbed and very, very, very much in, in their own world. Mm-hmm. So that, that we know that that sometimes happens. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you um, it's 21 years now since Dr. Andrew Wakefield published his article in The Lancet where. He proposed a link to the MMR vaccine and autism. Dr. Wakefield was subsequently struck off the medical register by the General Medical Council in part for falsifying his work. And yet from time to time, 
I still uh, get asked if the MMR is completely safe and it, is it in any way associated with autism? And I was just wondering, could you just summarise how that link was disproven? So this is also very interesting in how um, the general public, public can be influenced by media coverage. Yeah. So for, for the linkage with, um, between MMR vaccine and autism, it was that one single paper um, which has got um, a sample size of less than 20 children. Yeah, I think it was as little as 12. Yes, like it's, that. A, yeah. it's a, around that. Yeah. And, um, and it was really no more than a case report and the evidence base is very, very weak. And since then, 20 odd years later, there have been lots and lots of studies with, you're talking about of hundreds and thousands of children who have had MMR vaccine mm -hmm. compared to those who have not. And the incidence of autism is not any higher between those two, two um, populations. Yeah. So there's really no scientific basis to link MMR vaccine with autism at all. Could I ask you a little bit about the age of onset of autism? At what sort of age would parents start to expect to notice that their child was in some way different from other, other children around them? So autism, being a spectrum disorder, can manifest in many different ways. And so you have a group which we recognise as classic autism. They would present quite early on with quite severe developmental delay, speech and language difficulties. And for that cohort, um, they often start coming to see me or my, my colleagues around the age of two, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. But if the parents look back um, to earlier days, there may be signs as early as from about 15, 16 months mm -hmm. onwards when yeah. children seem to be developing and often there is a history of regression that they have learned words they have stopped using yeah. or they may be um, looking at people and the eye contact. So um, if parents look back, so some, there sometimes would be early signs from around 15, 16 months of age when mm -hmm. children prior to that would have been um, getting on fine with emergence of speech and language and eye contact and, and those would um, regress and disappear. But it's not usually until about two years, two and a half years that, that alarm bells are, mm -hmm. are raised before they come to seek medical help. Yeah. So that would be, I would say in my experience, over half of the children that are subsequently diagnosed with autism would, would present like that. Mm -hmm. Now that is the other half of them, which are the high functioning one. And they may seem to somehow get through the earlier milestones fine. They learn yeah. to speak, they learn to uh, follow instructions and follow the routines at the school. But nonetheless, it's almost like pro they, they're programmed to have these difficulties in developing social skills that would come quite naturally and instinctively yeah. to other children. Yeah. And it's not until mid-childhood from um, maybe the middle of primary school years mm -hmm. and sometimes not even, not even until they are in teenage years yeah. that they are struggling with their social yeah. development yeah. and they become quite noticeably different from the peers and, and that's when yeah. people may notice that they, they may have a problem. And do these concerns tend to come from the parents or do they come from teachers or is it a bit of a mixture? What, what's your experience? Very mixed, yeah. very mixed. Sometimes it is from uh, teachers, sometimes it could be from the parents mm -hmm. and sometimes I come across those who came from family friends who yeah. have experience with autism. Yeah. That yeah. They, would, they would notice that something not quite right with the, with the child. Mm -hmm.
Do you ever find there's a conflict of opinion about whether a child is normal between yourself and the parent? Um, quite often, yes. Yeah. Sometimes, well, nowadays people can do so much reading on the internet yeah. that they will start reading into the children, and 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 so I get that quite often, which is not a bad thing. You know, you know, if the parents are concerned, they sh- they should they should get um, professional advice. But other at other times, it would be the school would be quite concerned that the child is not um, getting on with other children or having difficulties in following the teacher's instructions and and they would raise with the parents and and sometimes parents somehow reluctantly come to see me yeah because it is more the school but they just want to sort of um, yeah. um, let the school know that they have done what what, what they yeah. can and yeah. and um, I and at times I'm, I might have agreed with the school but parents may have a different view mm-hmm. so that can be quite a tricky situation yeah um, and I think different practitioners would handle those situations differently but I tend to be quite parent and child centered and yeah. I do what they feel it is most helpful to them I, mean, I don't force a diagnosis on somebody no no and um do you ever find then that there's surprise on the parts of the parents when you actually say yes I actually I think that they do have autism um I don't I think by the time they have come to see me mm-hmm. there's there's it, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't come as a surprise if I would say that a child has got autism it may be more like disagreement than yeah than surprise they know there's something not not quite right but they may think there's some other reason or some other condition yeah could you talk me through a little bit about why it is that uh, we have all these different names for autism so you hear about uh, as well as autism we have autistic spectrum disorder and then you hear about other words such as Asperger's why is it that we have all this different terminology for this condition so I think our knowledge improved with time and a lot of those terms were used in the past. So originally you have classic autism, canvas autism, which is what was recognized I think way back in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, and as time moved on, people begin to recognize that there are other individuals who may not present exactly like the classic way, but they do have difficulties in interaction and communication and restrictive behavior. And so there was a time that there was um, a, a whole range of names given to those conditions describing slightly different manifestation. Mm-hmm. So you have classic autism, you have um, Asperger's syndrome, you have mm-hmm. high-functioning autism, and you have atypical autism, and you also have something called PDDNOS, mm-hmm. which is pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. Yeah. Um, so those were all, all kind of described and defined in... Um, uh, international agreed diagnostic man- manuals, but things have changed since 2012-13, when um, the, the the most recent um, addition of DSM-5, which is an American system of diagnostic coding, that decided that there are not enough boxes to put all those people into yeah. because they can manifest in in so many ways. Although we may have six or seven different conditions that we we try to slot them into. But there, there is so much overlap. It, 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 it was, it was agreed by the international um, uh, researchers 
that it would be best just use one term, yeah. which is autism spectrum disorder, mm -hmm. which I ag agree with. I think some in, for some parents, it makes a difference to them whether it is Asperger's syndrome or autism. It doesn't sound yeah. quite as serious. And yeah. I still use that term sometimes, which helps the parents to to understand and come to terms with the condition. So Asperger's is uh, where they have autistic characteristics, but they tend to be higher functioning. Is that right? Yes. So if you look at the strict diagnostic criteria, th those with Asperger's syndrome would just would tick just as many boxes as anyone else. But what differentiates them from the the other group is that they have got uh, quite a high level of intelligence, mm -hmm. and also they have got quite um, good speech and language development at, mm -hmm. the, at an early age. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference. Yeah, and it's true that quite a lot of children who do have autism often have problems with learning disabilities as well. Is yeah. that right? That's correct. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And. What sort of outlook can we expect for uh, children with autism in terms of their social life, their work, their family life and relationships? Um, you know, what, what's the outlook like for them? So, again, it is quite variable. And, and in my experience, the most useful um, predictor is their underlying intelligence or their cognitive functioning. Yeah. Um, it would determine how well they can respond to intervention and also how well they can cope with the challenges in life. Yeah. So it's almost like it's not so much the autism that hold them back, but it's actually the, the cognitive difficulties that hold yeah. them back more than the autism. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look, if you take away that and look at autism on its own, um, of course, it is still a spectrum and some individuals would have better communication skills than others and some would be more pro-social than in others. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, if they are given early intervention and given ways of mm -hmm. managing their understanding of people and understanding yeah. the expectation in in the social context, they can do very well. and And many of them go on to lead independent life, mm -hmm. have relationship, career, and so on. Yeah, yeah. How does that uh, outcome change depending on whether the child has had an intervention early on in the development compared to? one who might have presented much later on in your experience? Um, the earlier intervention um, comes in would, would be the, the better prognosis. There's a lot of um, research into that early intervention makes a big difference. Could I ask you a little bit about what's the prevalence of autism? That is to say, you know, how common is autism? The National Autistic Society says that in the UK we have 700,000 people who are affected by autism, which is somewhere in the region of about one in a hundred. Mm -hmm. uh, is that figure going up? Is it plateauing? What, what's happening? I think it's going up. Um, <clears throat> I, I would think it's definitely more than 1%, maybe not yeah. as high as 2%, but yeah. maybe between 1% to 1.5%, that sort yeah. of region. Yeah. And um, the, the, there are a few reasons for that. Uh -huh. So. It's very hard to say whether the true incidence has gone up or, or, or not because we are much better at identifying mm -hmm. um, autism. And There's much more awareness about it in the public. That as well. And yeah. there, there, there are a few really factors that drive the figures up. Mm -hmm. um, the availability of autism diagnostic assessment is much better than like 20 years ago. When, when I first started in this area, um, in this field, 
it's meant to be a rare condition and, and now we know how wrong we were. Yeah. And so in those days, you have to refer to specialist centers like Great Ormond Street Hospital to get mm -hmm. an autism diagnosis. Whereas now, autism diagnostic assessment is available in all um, areas of the UK. So th that's the first thing. The second thing is we are much, as you say, we're much more um, aware and we're much, we're much better at recognizing them. And thirdly, I think there's also possibly a political drive for for people to want to get a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in, in this day and age, um, resources are hard to come by yeah. and, um, and you need to com compete against other individuals. And having a diagnosis, rightly or wrongly, makes a difference of how where resources would be uh, provided. Yeah. Uh, if I could just move on to ask you a little bit about the actual process of assessment. So let's say I, as a GP, have made a referral to you. I've got uh, a parent with me who's worried about their child and their behaviour. What would then happen next once you've got the referral? So there are many different models of um, assessment and um, different areas have developed their ways of assessing. But the key is that we all should follow um, an, the NICE guidance, which has got very clear um, elements of what an assessment would constitute. It, it, it is important that the assessment is just not, it's not just a snapshot of a child in the clinic for even half an hour or an hour. It needs to be something that is taken over a period of time yeah. and so that you can get information from other professionals mm -hmm. who have seen the child in different settings. Mm -hmm. So the difficulties would need to be in more than just one setting. Yeah. And um, I would always start with a holistic developmental assessment because if you go straight into autism assessment, you could go down a very wrong path without yeah. looking at the other factors. Yeah. And um, so the, my first appointment is really to getting to know the child and the family. And if I feel that there are sufficient features mm -hmm. that to, to warrant a diagnostic assessment, then I would put the child forward to the the second stage, which is more diagnostic assessment. Yeah. And that would be a multidisciplinary assessment mm -hmm. with... Um, so in, in this service, we have uh, doctors, pediatricians, um, speech and language therapists, and mm -hmm. occupational therapists. Yeah. And in addition, we, we, all, we always gather information from uh, an education setting, either mm -hmm. nursery or school, yeah. so that we get information from the teachers to, to tell us what the child is like. And they can tell us things that we cannot see in a clinic setting, yeah. which like is like um, how they get on with other children, yeah. because we don't have that opportunity here in the clinic setting. Mm -hmm. So we'll get information from a range of people. Parental view office is very important and mm -hmm. just really as many different angles as possible so that it, it, we, we, are, we are clear that what we're seeing is not just a, a snapshot or one-off but a more mm -hmm. um, sort of a holistic view of the child. Mm -hmm. How do you find parents tend to respond as they go through that process? I'm imagining that you know, as they see this assessment happening, mm -hmm. they probably are getting an idea in their mind as to, you know, which way the diagnosis is going. Is that right? Um, I think it's, once again, quite variable. Some parents are very clear right from the beginning. Others, um, as a doctor, really need to be very sensitive of, of where they are yeah. on, on, on that journey. So some parents, although the child in front of me is very clearly... Um, 
have very strong artistic features. Mm -hmm. But you, if you might be able to tell that just from the first introduction, I could, but I don't always because if the yeah. parents are not ready for it, I think yeah. I don't think it's helpful to no. to to tell them. To, but you you would have your own suspicions yeah. quite quickly, I imagine. Yeah. I I would, and yeah. I would. Um, help the parent along on that journey. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it really depends on where they are, how they respond mm -hmm. to um, that sort of bad news information yeah. and yeah. how I can prepare them for it. Yeah. I, I don't always use the A word in the first appointment. No. No. Um, sometimes they would mention it. So I yeah. always get, start, try to get an idea where, where they are before I yeah. jump in with that. I think your child has got whatever it is. Um, but I would try to provide some support for the, for them, mm -hmm. if possible, with um, other therapists or other community worker. Mm -hmm. School is also a very helpful resource to try to sort of help the parent along in that journey. Mm -hmm. And as the assessment process carries on, obviously, things become clearer. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a lot of individuals involved in this assessment. Over what sort of time period are we looking at to come to a firm conclusion about what, what the diagnosis is. Okay, so after the first um, initial assessment, um, in the NHS setting, I put them on a waiting list. Now, unfortunately, they just, the demand is so high mm -hmm. that often they're very long waiting lists, yeah. waiting time for, for autism assessment. What kind of time are parents looking at? Um, we, are, we are meant to complete the assessment from beginning to end in uh, less than 30 weeks. It still sounds quite a long time, but yeah. I know that nationally, a lot of services are having waiting lists as long as one year, one and yeah. a half years, and yeah. some places even longer. Yeah, gosh, it's a long time to wait, isn't it? It's a long time to wait, yeah. yeah. But in terms of, if, if we don't have a waiting list, how long would it take to make a diagnosis? Mm -hmm. I would think that if the, the, the presentation is clear, yeah. um, between the first and the second appointment, the first appoint assessment and the, and the final assessment, mm -hmm. I would still need to have some time to gather my information. Yeah. And I would say at a minimum couple of weeks, maybe yeah. longer, so that it, it mustn't be rushed through. It's a really important okay. assessment. But um, to, to get that information um, and, and, and do the assessment, it could, it could be done as quickly as within two, three weeks. So as well as making your own assessments, you're receiving these assessments from multiple different members of yeah, the team yeah. and you're putting that all together and you're coming up with your diagnosis one way or the other. That's right, yeah. yeah. And, and, and in some cases, I may actually recommend um, deferring the diagnostic assessment for a bit longer mm -hmm. because as a doctor, I can only see the child for really two or three assessments and those are snapshots. And if the picture, presenting picture, picture is not clear cut, it, that was there's a lot of advantage of sending in some therapists to provide intervention over a period of time. It could be a period of a few months, mm -hmm. but that would be a really useful time for the therapist to get to know the child much yeah. better and seeing the child on many occasions. And that observation is really invaluable in feeding into the, the final diagnostic formulation. Mm -hmm. So once you've come to the conclusion that the child has got autism, how do you go about helping them? It's, there, there are so many different things that I found when I was looking into the subject of autism for this podcast. That there was the spell framework, there was the social stories, the comic strip conversations, the visual supports. In a way, I got the impression that you were sort of coaching the parents to coach the kids. Does that sound right? I think the... The, the, the 
the range of intervention reflects on how variable the presentation can be. Yeah. And if you just using a medical model, if you got a pharmacy of medicine, you, you need to know what you're treating before you will write a prescription. Mm-hmm. And so for autism, it could affect different areas in different ways. If, if the main problem is communication, then you would um, use the more communication type of intervention, speech therapy, um, or if the child is not, re- not, not yet ready to learn to speak, you would use the visual communication, mm-hmm. like using picture exchange or use, using some simple signing. So th- that would be a whole group of intervention. And then if, if you have a child who, whose primary problem is interaction, then it's a whole range of interaction strategies like um, parent-child interaction, intensive mm-hmm. interaction and so on. Mm-hmm. So it depends on what are the main problems. And, and finally, behavior is a huge area of difficulty and there are many different behavior intervention um, ABA applied behavior analysis Mm -hmm. and many um, techniques that derive from that technique so it's it's really quite quite a big range Mm -hmm. and what I say to parents is that you 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 can you can work on 101 things at the same time but I, I I don't think that's helpful you may want to look at okay my child's got this 10 areas of difficulties, mm-hmm. but what would be, be the first one or yeah. two or three that I want to really yeah. be working on right now? And Could we give a, a worked example? So for, I have heard, for example, in Anna's case, she mm-hmm. reported that her son was you know, repeatedly banging his head on, on objects. I mean, that must be very sort of traumatizing, both for him but as for a parent. I mean, where would you start in trying to know what to do in that kind of situation? So I think you need to f- try to understand why the child is banging his head. Is it because mm-hmm. the child has got difficulties in expressing oneself? Mm-hmm. And so that would be a communication problem. Yeah. So you want to give the child more ability to communicate rather than resorting to self-injurious behavior. Mm-hmm. It could be a matter of attention-seeking behavior, mm-hmm. and then you, you would use behavior intervention by ignoring the, mm-hmm. the undesirable behavior, rewarding good behavior and also mm-hmm. distraction. So this depends on what it is. And you may it may be a combination of communication and attention seeking and yeah. you want to be working on both together. But the the thing about child development and behavior management is that you just be very persistent and very consistent with your approach so that the child gets the message. Mm-hmm. And and it's really important for the parents to stay as calm as they can because if you get wound up, it does not help the situation. No. It's easier said than done as a parent if you see your of child course. banging your head. It's very hard to just stand there and not do anything. Yeah. But that may be actually the right in- approach to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in Anna's case, she also referred to how Ethan would often respond well to stories and storytelling to describe how to respond into a certain situation. Is that what is meant by sort of social stories? Um, y- yes, I think that's... Um, one one approach to it is to to try to almost give a third person perspective to the child that right it's not you going to that party it's not you going to into that situation but look at little teddy bear going into mm-hmm. meeting his friends for whatever it is and and try to get the child to see it from a third person point of view mm-hmm. and using that way to give the child a script to work um, on you're in a way you're giving these children tools to use to help them identify how to manage these situations that will set them up for the rest of their life, is that right? Yeah, I think you need to take small steps towards the bigger 
um, goal you want to achieve. So don't make it, the, the situation too complicated. If there are too many things that the child have to deal with, just start with, right, let's deal with this one thing. Mm -hmm. And, and, and just keep coaching and drilling and, until the child gets it and, and can apply the, the, the knowledge and skill. And then you can think about generalizing to other situations. Mm -hmm. But just be very specific and very well defined and, 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 and keep it simple to begin yeah. with. It's a very steep learning curve for the child as well as the parents to take on all this information. How is that process for the parents? Um, I think you'd be surprised at how many parents are so intuitive because they know the child better than you mm -hmm. and often i found that they they have almost like quite instinctively work out ways of, of uh, avoiding unnecessary conflict with the child um, or encouraging good behavior and working around the situation mm -hmm. so quite often they are in a, in, a, in a good place to begin with it it often helps them to try to break things down into understandable chunks because mm -hmm. if you have a child who is doing all sorts of things it's very easy to to mix everything up so try to just analyze things a bit uh, that helps and um, the other thing is we encourage parents to seek support from the local support network and, yeah. and often parents other parents who've been through yeah. the situation are the best support and mm -hmm. and best coaches for for parents with newly diagnosed children yeah. because they would been through it before they know where to get help where would you find the best cinema for children with autism and mm -hmm. and and that sort of knowledge that mm -hmm. as a professional we, we 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 may not be as good as they are what about in the school environments uh, you hear reports of children not always getting the support that they need or being quite sort of easy easy targets for bullying is that an area that you can offer support and advice for parents um yes it it it's 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 not an easy question because say in 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 the area that i work in there's about 80 schools 80 to 90 schools and they, they they're all different mm -hmm. they would have different staff to to pupil ratio they have got different experience of managing children with autism and then it also depends on who else is around in, 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 a, in a classroom so children with autism are quite vulnerable to being bullied or being um, manipulated or taken advantage of because yeah. compared to other children they, they may be more naive and more trusting yeah um, so they, they do need a lot of um, supervision and support mm -hmm. and quite often i suggest or recommend for the school to try to put in pastoral support for the child, mm -hmm. maybe nominate um, uh, a safe adult for the child to go yeah. to if they have got problems. Or um, sometimes we ask the school to try to try to a buddy system so to provide an, another child for the, ch for, for the child to get, get, get along with. Mm -hmm. And um, just be very um, vigilant about the possibilities of bullying and, and children being mm -hmm. um, taken advantage of by other children. Yeah. Is the support that you're providing these children with uh, time limited? Uh, is it uh, open to the parents to come back to you? How does it work once you've given them that initial uh, support? So I, I see that the, the main benefit of um, a paediatrician is at the initial assessment and diagnostic um, period. And once a diagnose, diagnosis is confirmed, I tend to 
move them onto the intervention services, mm. which would be therapy, psychologists, yeah. and education services. And obviously, if there are any new concerns and any any um, de new developments, I'd be very pleased to see them. But I tend to sort of stand back a little. But um, what I have, from what I've heard from parents, they they find it very valuable to come to see it. A pediatrician once every so often, maybe once a year or so, mm -hmm. until they feel that the things are in place for them. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, this is not always available in the NHS right. because we're just so over, sort of overstretched with the demand on diagnostic services. Mm -hmm. And so here we are looking at improving community support for um, family affected by autism, mm -hmm. not so much. Um, making use of doctor's time, but using yeah. other professionals who have experience. And, and of course, they can, mm -hmm. they can come back to us if there are medical concerns or other concerns that, yeah. that are relevant. And does that include helping these children to transition into uh, adult life, into schooling, into university and so on? Well, the word transition would make one think about transitioning to adulthood, but actually, if you look at a child's journey from preschool all the way up to um, college and beyond, mm -hmm. there are some key transition points that one need to be very careful about. Mm -hmm. From nursery to primary school, yeah. from primary to secondary school, and finally secondary school to college or, mm -hmm. or to, to, um, to apprenticeship. So all those particular point would need a lot of attention. Those are major changes. So going back to your question about transitioning to, to adult services, um, there's a lot of good work that's being done um, by some of the schools here. And here we have a, a special school which has got very good link with the college. And mm -hmm. so even before the point of transitioning to the college, yeah. they would get the pupils to start going to college to visit and mm -hmm. get a college to to get to know the pupils. So the key is not to rush at the last minute, yeah. but to start earlier on. And under the um, Special Education Needs Code of Practice, preparing for adulthood should start at year nine, so when a child is about 13 to 14 year yeah. old. So you should start earlier, so that um, people are, are aware of a child and get to know the child and, and support are in place before the child transitions. I was just wondering to end with, could you give us a sense of how the NHS is doing in terms of being able to provide the uh, clinicians to diagnose the children with autism as well as to provide access to the uh, supporting professionals that come with that diagnosis, so the occupational therapists, the speech and language therapists and so on? So um, it is a struggle because the demand has really expanded so much from like even 10 years ago mm -hmm. that w that we, we haven't been um, asked to see quite as many children as and young people as we are nowadays mm -hmm. so it is very difficult and we are well, not just us but many services are uh, looking at um, using a more multidisciplinary mo model because there are not enough doctors to do yeah. diagnosis so a lot of services are relying more and more on therapists and psychologists to yeah. do the diagnosis. And I think that would make a difference. And now in terms of providing support for these young people, in terms of intervention, again, there's just, just not enough resources. Mm -hmm. And 
I think earlier on you, you mentioned about training parents, mm -hmm. and that seems to be um, quite a useful model, not just because of resources, but there's a lot of research that's been done to show that the best intervention, the most successful interventions are, the, are those that actually involve training parents to provide intervention. Yeah. As you can imagine, a therapist can only spend at the most once a week with the child, whereas mm -hmm. the child is with the parents 24-7, seven mm -hmm. days a week. And if the parents can incorporate some of those um, strategies and intervention throughout the day-to-day -day activities, that would make a lot more difference and much more effective mm -hmm. than, than, than just using therapy. Yeah. Um, and before we go, I was just wondering, would you recommend any particularly useful uh, resources or websites for uh, parents who are concerned that their child might possibly have autism. So there's the National Autistic Society website, which has got lots of useful mm -hmm. uh, fantastic information website, on there. Yes. I have yeah. been on there uh, many times myself. It has got lots of great resources. Are there any other resources you recommend? So um, on, I just want to say a, a word about the National Autistic Society, that if you go onto that website, um, it would be quite useful to, as a parent or a professional in a local area, to look out for the local coordinator. So it is a national network, but they have got local coordinators yeah. which, who have got a local knowledge and they can provide a, a lot of useful information. Now, in terms of other website, the one that I um, often recommend to parents is a website called Research Autism. That sounds quite academic, but actually it, it does use very um, layman language, looking at all the interventions that are available mm -hmm. and giving the evidence base and describing the intervention in, in quite clear terms. Mm -hmm. So that's the, I would highly recommend that um, that website. It is a charity, so it hasn't got um, conflict of interest of yeah. trying to promote particular ways of intervention or therapy, mm -hmm. but it gives a very balanced view about which, say someone is interested in a particular intervention, you can look it up on that website, it will tell you what that was about, and it also gives you the research evidence whether this is effective or something that you should avoid. Yeah. One of the things I found on the uh, National Autistic Society webpage was a whole section about bogus treatments, um, yeah. you know, claims of cures and this and that. Is, is this something that parents ask you about much? They, they sometimes do ask me about the latest like um, stem cell therapy and, and, and the yeah. like. Yeah. And um, sometimes they even ask me things that I haven't heard of because yeah. there's so many people who try to promote um, experimental treatment. Yeah. But I found that the Research Autism website have most, if not all of those um, mm -hmm. intervention described and, and analyzed, very useful. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, Dr. Ko, thank you ever so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure having you with us here on the podcast. Thank you. I hope that people at home have enjoyed listening. If you'd like to ask me any questions, please feel free to email me at drhogspod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.